Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us. Open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Father, establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. Father, we would ask you to do all of this and more. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, Susan and I were at a conference on religious liberty. This was in another state, really long way away from here. And I had a lot of meetings that I had to go to, but Susan didn't have to go to the meetings, and so she got to spend a lot of time sitting by the pool and just relaxing. And one day while I was in meetings, she was in a little shop buying some food near the hotel where we were staying. And this gentleman walks by her and says, go Tigers. And she is like a good alumnus. She's wearing her LSU gear and she's an LSU fan. Our whole family's an LSU fan. And she knew that whoever the voice was coming from was from another fan who saw her hat and was expressing solidarity. So sure enough, she turns around and she sit to see who it is. And there's this tall African-American man standing there and he's smiling got this contagious smile on his face, and they immediately struck up this conversation. And it turns out that he is, he, he's from Atlanta, but he grew up in Louisiana, grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana, in fact. But uh, he, he and his whole family were LSU fans, just like we're LSU fans. And so they had this conversation, and uh, they said goodbye, bought their things, and, and uh, he went away. And uh, a, a friend that Susan had made while she was at the conference came up to her and said, do you know who that was? Susan said, no, I don't know who that was. She said, that, that, that's the fire chief from Atlanta. That's Kelvin Cochran. How many of you know Kelvin Cochran? You've heard the story of, of Kelvin Cochran. If you've watched the news at all in the last couple of years, you've probably seen him. He is... He, what, he is, in fact, or was, in fact, the fire chief in Atlanta, Georgia. Previous to that, he had been appointed by President Obama to be the United States fire administrator. And he worked with FEMA and with the United States Department of the Homeland Security to prevent fires and to help improve fire responses around the country. And so he had this, this nationwide reputation for excellence in, in firefighting and in, and in leadership. He also happens to be a Christian. And he's an active member at his church, Elizabeth Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And he had taught a men's Bible study there. And during that process of doing this Bible study, he wrote a little Bible study booklet and he, that he had self-published. It was about 162 pages long. It was just for men to disciple men. And about six pages out of the 162 dealt with sexuality. And he took just a normal Orthodox Christian approach that any kind of sexual experience outside of marriage is, is sinful. And that excludes all manner of immorality. And one thing he mentioned on one page, maybe two pages, was homosexuality. And so this Bible study book was out. He'd used it with the guys at his church. He'd shared it with some friends. He had shared it with some coworkers who were open to talking about these things. Nobody had ever had any problems with it until one day somebody got a copy of his Bible, uh, his Bible study guide and he gave it to an openly gay Atlanta 
city council member. And then from there, it made its way on up the chain, eventually to the mayor. And this firestorm of controversy ensued because of this Bible study guide that the fire chief had written. And they suspended him without pay. And then they ultimately fired him from being the fire chief in Atlanta because he had shared this book. They did an internal investigation in Atlanta, and they found that he had never committed any acts of discrimination against anybody, including gay people, but they fired him anyway. All because he wrote this little Christian book, and then he shared it with coworkers. <clears throat> Our text this morning begins with these words in 2 Timothy 3.1. But understand this, that in the last days... There will come times of difficulty. Kelvin Cochran is a living example of what it means to live in times of difficulty. He's a Christian. He spoke openly of his Christian faith. And they fired him. How many of you would be willing to face the same kind of difficulty for your faith? How many of you would be surprised if it ever actually came to that for you, that you would lose your job or something like that? I'm concerned that many American Christians today are not prepared for the last days precisely because they are not ready for difficult times. We have grown so accustomed to a government that protects our religious freedom that it's hard for us to imagine that we might be called on at some point to be a faithful Christian under a government that does not protect our religious freedom. We have grown so accustomed to an American culture that has accepted Christianity as a legitimate viewpoint, maybe not one that everybody agrees with, but one that could exist in the public sphere. We've grown accustomed to that. And so we find it hard to accept that American culture is moving away from accepting Christianity as a viable viewpoint. We're accustomed to meeting freely for worship here every week. What if it doesn't always remain that way? There are many places in the world where it's not that way. We're accustomed to tax-exempt status. What if the government loads us up with oppressive tax burdens? We're accustomed to speaking openly about our faith without losing our job or our friends. But what if speaking openly about Christ causes you to lose your job or your friends. It's like that in many places around the world. It's already like that in many places around America. Are we ready to take up our cross and follow Christ if it comes to that for us? I think it's this kind of distress that the Apostle Paul is trying to address in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verses 1 to 9. I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. Remember, in, first, in 2 Timothy, in the first two chapters, Paul tells Timothy to stay true to the gospel, not to be ashamed of it, and even to suffer for it if it comes to that. He's warned Timothy to steer clear of false teaching, even as he has told him to confront false teachers. And now, in chapter 3, 
he's widening the lens a little bit to talk about the fact that opposition to the gospel is characteristic not just of false teachers, but of this age in general. This age is, is in opposition to Christ. And so he's going to tell Timothy what he needs to know in terms of the fact that there are times of difficulty upon us. That means that there are times of conflict upon the Christian church. And Paul wants Timothy and us to know three things about these times of difficulty. Here they are. <coughs> Number one, he wants us to know that times of difficulty are coming and really are present among us. Number two, he wants us to know why the difficult times are coming. And then number three, he wants us to know how the difficult times threaten the church. Okay, so number one, that the difficult times are coming. Number two, why the difficult times are coming. And number three, how the difficult times threaten the church. So take a look at verse one, that the difficult times are coming. He says this, understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. So there it is. But notice the contrast with the word but at the beginning of the sentence. In the last verses of chapter 2, Paul had been telling Timothy to confront false teachers, and he was actually kind of hopeful about it. If you remember that last sermon in chapter 2, he had said, you know, maybe God would grant them repentance. Maybe some of these people who are teaching the wrong thing would come around to the right thing, and God would, would help them, and, and they, would, they would be in fellowship with us. And so there's this little ray of hope that perhaps some people who are in open conflict with the gospel might come around to the truth of the gospel instead of opposing it. But now Paul begins this sentence in verse 1 with the word but. He's indicating a contrast in expectations. Yes, confront opponents with hopefulness that they might respond and come around to the truth, but know this. You're not always going to win over your opponents. And the world is filled with opponents of the gospel. And those opponents make things difficult for God's people. That's where he's going with this. So he tells him to know what they're facing. Know this. Understand this. Look what he tells them to know. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now, when Paul says, in the last days, he's not talking about some yet-to-come period of days. A lot of times we'll read that phrase, the last days, and we're thinking, oh, that's some end times, you know, uh, Kirk Cameron uh, deal, okay? That's not what he's talking about here, all right? It's not some time out in the future when he's talking about the last days. When Paul says last days, he means what the New Testament means by it. Like in Acts chapter 2, you remember Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Spirit of God fell and men and women began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And Peter interpreted this and said, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. He's saying, look, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church at Pentecost, you're in the last days. You're there. 
You're at the last days. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Note again, the last days include Jesus' ministry and sending forth of the Spirit. So what does that mean? The last days begin with the coming of the Messiah and the sending forth of the Spirit. It's the final period of time before the second coming of Christ in judgment. And that final period includes right now and every day in between the sending of the Spirit until Jesus returns. Every day of the church's existence has been in the last days. So we're there. We're there right now. And this text says that this entire period of time is going to be characterized by times of difficulty. Another translation says it, it's distressing times. There's another translation that calls it terrible times. Another says terrifying times. The King James calls it perilous times. Contemporary English Bible calls it dangerous times. All of those translations are trying to get at a, a truth that's in this word that's translated in the ESV as times of, of difficulty. Um, it, it's, what it means is, is it's trying to emphasize the fact that it's not talking, difficult times is not talking about a sore toe or like your car won't start. All right? it, it's bigger than that. It's more profound than that in terms of the opposition and the suffering that God's people experience. Because these last days are marked by a fact that they are hard to bear, they're painful, and they're grievous. Why are they that way? Well, when you read times of difficulty or difficult times, don't think it's just those little small things. These, this age, these last days are marked by active opposition to Christ and his purposes in the world. That's a, that's a pretty wide range in scope, isn't it? That from the pouring out of the Spirit until the return of Jesus in glory, we're supposed to have an expectation of opposition to Christ and really opposition to anybody who follows Christ. That's why the days are difficult for us and hard to bear at times. And depending on... When you live and where you live, it may be more or less difficult. I guarantee you today, the last days are more difficult in Saudi Arabia than they are in Louisville, Kentucky. But God's people globally are facing conflict. And we are facing it here in our own measure. Jesus told us it would be like this. If the world hates you, he says in John 15, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to expect the world to treat you like it treated him. A servant, Jesus says, is not greater than his master. That means you're not going to get to be treated any better than Jesus was. If you are being treated better than Jesus was, you should view that as a gracious respite from an otherwise horrifying norm. Don't view your respite as the norm. This is the danger that we experience, I think, as American Christians. To think that this is the norm. These freedoms we've enjoyed for so long, they are not. And so this message is for us. We need to be ready. You know, there's a story in Acts 14 where Paul and Barnabas were in the cities of Lyconia and they were preaching the gospel there. <clears throat> and you know, they're penetrating the pagan world. <clears throat> they're penetrating the pagan world for the first time with the message of the gospel. And Paul comes into the city. He heals a man who had been lame from birth. And it says in Acts 14, when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So he does this miracle and they go, oh, these are divine beings. And they ascribe divinity to Paul and Barnabas. And it says, <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas had to explain, wait, we're not divine beings. Don't worship us. There's only one God. And it was all that they could do to keep these people from worshiping them after he had performed this miracle. Well, right about the time he performs the miracle, keep in mind, all these people are worshiping him, right? That means they're treating them well, all right? They're uh, trying to bow down and worship him. Right about that time, it says some Jews from Antioch, and from Iconium come into the city. Now, Paul had already been to the Iconium and, and Antioch. He had preached the gospel there, and they ran him off. And they tried to kill him. And the, 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 the Jews who were there, who were stirring up the crowds, basically followed him to Lyconia. And now these people in Lyconia are so impressed with him, they're trying to worship Paul. These Jews come in, and it says they persuade the people that they need that Paul's a menace and they need to kill him. And guess what the people do? They go, all right, let's kill him. So they go from worshiping him to wanting to kill him. Don't be surprised if the culture turns on you really quickly. And if you felt comfortable in a place, one moment, it can change really quickly. This is what happened to Paul. And you know what they did? They listened to those Jews who'd come into the town and they stoned Paul and left him for dead. They dragged his body outside of the city, left him there. They thought he was dead. He wasn't dead. He got up. You know what he did after that? He went back into the city and he started preaching again. And then you know what he did after that? He went back to Antioch and to Iconium and he preached to them where the Jews had come from. And it says... <clears throat> that when he got back to this place where they had tried to kill him, it says they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, 
and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He went right back to the place where they were trying to kill him, right back to the place where there was opposition, and he preached the gospel. And guess what? There was fruit. There were disciples there who were strengthened and who were encouraged by his preaching. And people came to faith. Listen, if you, if you read a text like 2 Timothy chapter 3 and you're getting discouraged, you're reading it the wrong way. It's not discouraging to be honest about the times of difficulty that we are facing. It's a time to be sober about the opportunities for witness that we have. And to know that God is going to empower us and strengthen us through the times of difficulty. None of the opposition that you face is a surprise to God. None of it. And so it should not be a surprise to you because he's told you that it would be this way. But he doesn't just tell you about the opposition. He tells you that on the other side of tribulation, you inherit a kingdom that cannot be taken away. And indeed, you are bringing a kingdom into the face of a world that's in opposition to Christ. And we are proclaiming the gospel to captives and the captives are being set free. You can suffer for Christ in the present because of the promise of his deliverance in the future and because of his powerful presence with you in the suffering. And so you have this word here that difficult times are coming, but it's not a word of discouragement. It's a word of, of reality. And it's a word calling us to a certain kind of expectation. So know that difficult times are coming, but then also the second thing, know why the difficult times are coming. And this is verses 2 through 5. Verses 2 through 5 explain this. Look at it. Verse 2. Why are the difficult times coming? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Now, notice that verse 2 begins with an explanation. It's telling us why, right? It says, for the people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, etc. The reason, this is what you need to note here, the reason for the difficult times is because the times are filled with difficult people. In fact, we were all difficult people, right? Apart from grace. We are difficult people apart from grace. He's saying you're facing difficult times because the times are filled with difficult people. And what makes the times so hard to bear and painful and grievous is that people who don't know Christ can be hard to bear, painful, and grievous. That's it. And so Paul gives this litany. It's actually in this list of characteristics of this age, the people in this age. It's 19 things that he says there. 19 things of what people will be like in the last days. And what he's saying here about people is what's been true of people in every age apart from grace. Notice the first thing. We'll just walk through these quickly. He says people are going to be lovers of self. I think this is interesting that this is at the beginning of the list because this is basically the person who's selfish. This is the person who puts their own needs and wants before everybody else's 
needs, and wants. It's the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. The first fruit of the Spirit is love for others. This person loves himself. And the lovers of self, that impulse is the fountainhead of every other evil that we experience. It's the ultimate idolatry. Lovers of money. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve God in money. You have to pick one. If people are loving money, guess what? They're not loving God. Proud and arrogant. And these two words, it's interesting. The word translated as proud means one who boasts. And the one who's arrogant is, is, the heart, is, a, is, a, is a word about the person's heart. So it's talking about the heart that's prideful, which brings forth the words that are, that are prideful. They're the kind of people. Oh, both of them are condemned here, but they're the kind of people that God opposes. You remember that in James 4, 6? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The fifth thing in the list is abusive. This, it's interesting because this word abusive comes from the Greek word blasphemoi. Guess what English word comes from blasphemoi? Blasphemy. Um, it's talking about, but, but it doesn't mean what we think of in terms of blasphemy, where you speak something abusive against God. Here the term is talking about speaking something abusive against your neighbor. So this characteristic of the age, difficult people mark difficult times. Why are they difficult? Because they speak abusively about one another. That's what we do apart from, from grace. People defame, denigrate, and demean one another. Disobedient to their parents. If you go back and look in the Old Testament, the Old Testament views disobedience to parents as a serious sin because it means there's a, it, it reveals a heart that is unwilling to come under authority in general. Ungrateful. The inability to give thanks for blessings is a sign of godlessness. And, and in this case, it may be related to the disobedience to parents. A person who can't be grateful for what their parents have given them is a mark of the spirit of an age of godlessness. Unholy is, is talking about opposition to God or, or to what is sacred. Heartless, that's actually translating. That's, I don't even think that's the best translation. It's really talking about somebody who's unloving. It paints the picture of a person who's without natural affection. And so it, this too might go with being disobedient to, disobedient to parents. You should have a love and concern for your parents, but these people, they're without natural affection. They don't love the people they're supposed to love. They're just sort of angry or indifferent. Unappeasable, which means irreconcilable. This is a person who's unwilling to negotiate a solution to a problem with another person. You ever meet anybody like that? You ever been somebody like this? When you have a conflict with a person like this, they're not interested in making it right. They just want to be right and win. Even when they're wrong, they're more interested in saving face than in saving the relationship. That's what it means to be irreconcilable. Slanderous, this is another way of talking about someone um, who uses abusive speech. That's what slander is. But this word is a different word than the one that came from before. It's the Greek term diabolos. Diabolos. Guess where that word appeared before? Right above it in chapter 2, where it talked about 
the Diabolos who has taken them cap captive to do his will. The Diabolos is the devil. And here it says that some people are like the devil. They're accusers. They speak slanderously of people. People that speak this way are doing the work of the devil. Without self-control. One of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is self-control. These people are without the Spirit. They don't have self-control. And so they're still enslaved to their own sinful desires and longings. They cannot and will not break free of them. Brutal. This is a term that's used elsewhere to refer to people who forget about the fact that they're created in the image of God. And so they are debased by their sinful urges and they become like beasts. It's used that way of people, uh, of people who are acting like lions in another text. So they're brute, violent, unthinking, and unreasonable beasts. <clears throat> Not loving good. This draws us back to the beginning of the list. Evil people love themselves. They love their own interests. They love money, but they don't love the good. Paul says that's, that's every sinner's natural in inclination. Romans chapter 3, no one does good, not even one. Uh, treacherous. Uh, treacherous is a word that was used of Judas Iscariot in chapter 6 and verse 16. So difficult times are due to difficult people. There are some people who will betray you. Have you ever had this happen to you? Somebody willing to throw you and your friendship under the bus in order to advance their own interest. The world is filled with these people. Reckless means being impetuous and rash and reckless and thoughtless. Those who stop at nothing to gain their own ends. Swollen with conceit, which literally means puffed up. Another reference to arrogance. A person whose self-estimation is much higher than God's estimation of him. This person lacks the humility of a sinner saved by grace. It's arrogance. The 18th thing on the list is lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so these lovers of pleasure are people who are preoccupied with pleasing themselves and they're not preoccupied with, with pleasing God. So Paul, so th there's your first 18 items in the list, right? Paul's not saying that every single person in this age displays the maximum amount of each one of these characteristics. That's not what he's saying. Not everybody is all 18 of these things all the time. What he's saying is that these are the kinds of things that are going to be normal and shouldn't be surprising among sinners apart from grace. These things are, people are just going to do these things. People are going to behave this way. And they're going to hurt you when they do. And sometimes they're going to behave in these ways. They'll be abusive in their speech. They'll be brutal. They'll betray you. Sometimes they'll do it because you're a Christian. And when they do it, it's because they hate Christ. Remember that? Jesus said, John 15, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So the, the New Testament explains for us why we experience this opposition at times because sinful people are running from the light and you are a representative of the light. 
The last item in the list, the 19th thing, is in verse 5. And this one may be the worst thing in the list, okay? Everything up until this point is just describing pagan society in general. But here he says, some of them will have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then of this particular group of people, he says, avoid such people. Don't have anything to do with them. So think about this. So you've got this pagan society in general, but he's saying there's a, there's a subgroup of people who are not Christians, but they act like they're Christians. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. They have the appearance of being a Christian, but they're not really Christian. They go to church. They participate in some of the habits of religion. They may even say that they're a born-again believer, but even though they look one way on the outside, on the inside, they're just the same as they always were, enslaved to their sin. And so they take the name of Christianity on their lips, but they do not have the power of Christianity in their hearts. That's what it means to have a form of godliness but deny its power. And Paul says to Timothy, avoid such people. I think it's not unlike what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. Remember that? He says, remember I told you don't associate with immoral people? He said, I didn't mean immoral people of the world. You know, obviously lost people are going to be immoral. But if there's a so-called brother, somebody who's coming to your church pretending to be a Christian, but living like the devil, mm, we've got a different thing on our hands there. You've got someone who's subverting the truth in a a unique way, and the church of Jesus Christ has to say no to that person and say you can't live in a way that denies your Christianity. If you do, you can't be a part of this fellowship. That's why 1 Corinthians 5 is about church discipline and about how to separate in that situation. We're not supposed to stand aloof from lost people in their sin, But we are to stand aloof from those who claim to be Christian whose lives betray that confession. They don't have standing in the church, in other words. And if they do have standing, we're supposed to remove it. Paul's point is this. Sometimes the church confronts the world. While it's doing that, though, the world will creep into the church. And we have to be vigilant to keep clear of that kind of compromise. It's a a vigilance that we have over our our own hearts individually, but it's also a vigilance we have over our community. So why are times of difficulty afflicting the church? Because we're surrounded by difficult people. That's what Paul's trying to say. They're lovers of themselves and they're not lovers of God. And the only way to transform difficult times into good times is to transform difficult people into saved people. That's it. You got a bad culture? Well, guess what? You can't change the culture without changing the people. You just can't. Which means, as we're running in an election season right now, if you're looking to the government to fix the brokenness around us, it's not going to happen. You can't fix the brokenness unless you can fix the people. Listen, I have, I have critiques that could go bipartisan, okay? Go to 
both parties. I'm, I'm going to pick on one party because they just had their convention this week. The guy they nominated to uh, run for president stood up before everybody and he said, I have a message for all of you. The crime and violence that today afflicts our nation will soon come to an end. Beginning on January 20th, 2017, safety will be restored. He'd gone through a litany of all the problems with our country, which we really do have problems in our country. But he said on January 20th, that's Inauguration Day, safety will be restored. Really? On January 20th, 2017, safety will be restored. No! You're not going to fix a broken culture until you fix a broken people. And it ain't going to happen on January 20th, 2017, unless Jesus comes back. <laughs> there is one Messiah, not two. Listen, politics are important. We have a stewardship as Christians to use our democratic privileges in a way that pleases the Lord. We need more Christians to be salt and light and to stand for justice and truth. I think even an elected office. But beware of any politician or person from either side of the aisle. And you'll hear this from both sides, okay? Not just one side. You beware of anybody who promises utopias based on messianic delusions of grandeur. We have heard this from both sides of the political spectrum, and we need to reject that utopianism whenever we hear it. Because there is one Messiah, there's one Lord, one Savior who will make all things new. He has one bride that he never cheats on. He will never leave her or forsake her or break, break his promises to her. And he is a specialist at taking difficult people and making them saved people. That's what he does. And he has left us here to do that work. In difficult times. And we're going to prevail. We are. The gates of hell will not stand against us. It doesn't matter who gets elected. And we are making these difficult times into kingdom times. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. And there will be many pretenders, but we will know them by their fruits. Because our Savior has shown us how to do it. So we got to know that difficult times are coming. we got to know why the times are difficult. And the last thing is this. we got to know how the difficult times threaten the church. Let me just say this quickly. Verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be made plain to all, as was that of those two men. I'm just going to sum up here. What he's saying is, is that among those who have a form of godliness but deny its power, people who say they're Christians but they're not really Christians, they come into the church. He's saying among those people, there will be some who emerge to be teachers. And they will creep into different people's households to have influence over them. In this case, he's saying in, that in Ephesus, there were some weak women, which means some women who were subject to compromise. 
They're weighed down by various sinful desires and all of these things. And these false teachers know how, they know how to sniff out weakness and exploit it. And so they come in and they entice them to believe their false teaching. And sometimes they entice them to do sinful things. It says these women who are weak, they're not just marked by um, sinful desires, but it says that they're always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It's possible to have your mind so open that your brains fall out. And our culture prizes a kind of open-mindedness, which is always experimenting with truth claims, but never clamping down to believe in the truth. And so it's, and it's considered a virtue in our culture. And here Paul is saying, this makes you subject to absurdity and judgment. Paul is saying, this is not good to be always learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. You should, sure, always learn, but you better learn the truth and believe it. Difficult times are coming. We are to know why difficult times are coming. We're to know how the difficult times threaten the church. The difficult times produce difficult people. Some of those difficult people pretend to be Christians, and some of them emerge as leaders and influences in the church. Paul is warning Timothy, you've got to watch out. You've got to stop that teaching in its tracks. Have nothing to do with them. Say, that sounds mean. He's not trying to be mean. He's trying to take care of God's people. We've got to be vigilant about the truth. And listen, this is the heart of our message. We believe that Jesus Christ was sent by God into this world as the Son of God who never sinned, who perfectly obeyed his Father. And the Bible says that he died on the cross to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay. He paid it in our place. And then God raised him up three days later and gave him life, and he is now seated at the right hand of God. And he offers to anyone who believes in him forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's the message of the gospel. And there are all kinds of people that want to subvert it, but they're not going to do it. They're not going to win in the end. That's the message. Anybody who believes in Jesus, no matter what you've done, what your past is, anybody who believes in that message can be saved. You say, well, you don't know what I've done. Well, you need to know the power of this gospel. It's bigger than you think it is. And it can save you. And if you haven't believed it, I pray that you will believe it now. Father, I do pray that you would use this word to strengthen your people. Help us in every way to be faithful and vigilant about the truth. Help us to spot error when it threatens. And Lord, when our hearts get taken away by things that aren't true, I pray you'd deliver us. But Lord, I pray you'd, you'd spare us from the wolves who are always just sort of lurking around the edges trying to figure out a way in to subvert your people.
Lord, help us to be vigilant, to guard against them. I pray that you would grant them repentance and that they may escape the snare that's been set for them by the devil. But if they don't, I pray that they would be exposed, just as Janice and Jambres were. So, Lord, protect your people. Lord, I pray for anybody who's here who doesn't know you, that they would believe the gospel and be saved. And, Father, we ask you to do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.